and welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Alan Femister to discuss socialism. Potter plays the half-hearted socialist, Alan the zealous anti-socialist, and I'm the immoderate moderator. A lot more could be said here, and perhaps we'll even do another episode on this subject, but this one is at least certainly lively. Let us know what you think by sending us a line at editors at thejosias.com. So uh, uh, that was a, such a lovely piece by Shostakovich. Uh, what, what made you choose that for this episode on uh, socialism, Potter Edmund? Well, you know, I thought we we should get a composer from a socialist country, and Shostakovich living in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics seemed like a good uh, a good candidate. And some of some of Shostakovich's music is kind of depressing, but this is so lighthearted and joyful. It really gets the spirit of socialism. <laughs> they're a, they're a joyful bunch, aren't they? Indeed, yeah. Particularly online. Um, and welcome back, Alan. It's it's good to have you back on the podcast, as always. Uh, Hello, thank you. Are, are you a big Shostakovich fan? Do you enjoy the the Russians? Uh, well, I, I, I uh, no to the first and yes to the second. <laughs> <laughs> So I was, I thought uh, it occurred to me to to have you on to talk about socialism, Alan, um, when there was a, a debate that Catholic Answers had between Sam Rocha and uh, Trent Torn mm. about socialism. And I watched the debate on YouTube uh, after it was recorded. And it seemed to me, although I, I wouldn't call myself a socialist, I thought that a much stronger case could have been made for socialism than Sam Rocha did. So I wanted to have you and a Catholic socialist on to debate the question. But unfortunately, the Catholic socialists uh, turned you down. I've become a persona non grata. So, <laughs> so I'm going to have to uh, defend the socialist position myself. Fair enough. Well, as you're sworn to poverty and you live on the basis of communal property, that seems entirely appropriate. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Monastic socialism. <laughs> I I saw that debate. I thought uh, I found it rather frustrating because there was a very little attempt to define any terms and uh, a lot of sort of, I mean, ad hominem. Although it was admittedly ad hominem arguments. I mean, they weren't. They weren't. Yes, but I mean that they. Yeah, it seemed lots of talking at cross purposes. No definition of terms and lots of strange ad hominem arguments that didn't seem to be really on the topic. So yeah, I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> So that's that's maybe where we should start, since my role will be the uh, the uh, either the moderator or the uh, ignorant outsider. Pick pick one. Uh, but uh, what is socialism? I mean, isn't that kind of a contested term? People define it in uh, many different ways. We'll start with uh, we'll start with the socialist uh, for for today at least. <laughs> right. Potter Edmund noted red. Uh, uh, noted Pinko, what what does socialism mean? <laughs> so it seems to me the most defensible account of socialism is the one that um, a certain C.W. Strand gives at the now defunct Tradinista uh, website, um, 
which he he in turn um, takes from Polanyi, uh, namely that socialism is the um, basically you could it, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically what it comes down to is that socialism is the subordination of economic life to the common good of the state. So you take yeah. economic production out of the realm of, of a self-regulating market and you regulate it for the common good of the state. Yeah, he says an economic system which transcending the self-regulating market subordinates a significant part of it to communal control. So I think as he goes through in the later parts, which has been a while since I read them, but in 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 uh, skimming them this morning, uh, getting ready for this podcast, I think what he basically means is is productive. Uh, the means of production should largely, if not entirely, be owned communally. But when right. you say it's the most defensible definition, I suspect that you mean by that it's the easiest definition to avoid condemnation by the magisterium not that it's the most defensible as actually being a definition of, of actual phenomenon existing in history called socialism um, well i mean you have many different kinds of things that have been called socialism in history um, but they have certain features in common and that definition is so vague even though the even though what he calls for in part three of that article is quite concrete and objectionable, but but the but um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but the definition itself is so vague that almost nobody isn't a socialist on that definition. I mean, nobody thinks that the market should be subject to no regulation, and obviously the regulation is communal in the sense that it comes from the temporal power. So I mean, so so I mean, I'd, I'd probably Hayek is a socialist on that definition, isn't he? Right. Right. I think that's the I think that is actually the crux of the problem with that definition. You I think you've you've gotten right to it. Uh and I think no one would also uh object to some property being owned communally even whether it's by say a monastery or uh by the church or by the state. The state might own for instance uh the power sources. That might be a place where the state steps in and owns it. Uh, the the power grid or something like that one can imagine. Well, well, look, look, at, look at it this way: the yeah. the uh, the modern age is kind of dominated by um, the capitalist economic system, and in fact, a lot of uh, state action is um, subordinated to economic objectives. So it, you get. Uh, and this a lot of I don't know what Hayek would say specifically, but a lot of sort of uh, American Hayek admirers would say the the role of regulation is not to subordinate the economy to the common good of the state, but rather it's to enable the market to function efficiently. The state becomes. Um, ordered to economic production the state what what you have is kind of this uh instead of uh societas perfecta ordered to the complete human good what you have is a sort of economic society in which the state is captured by economic interests the interests of the capitalist class and it does their bidding and the it sure it regulates the market in certain ways but it regulates it in order to uh, 
in order for the the market to more to function more efficiently and the, well, the final cause of everything is increased gdp right but well, if, hold on just but, a okay, second sorry. and here's the here's the here's the danger with this particular podcast you have a moderator who is not uh, neutral you have the socialist side being argued by someone who's also not a socialist and then you have uh, alan as the uh, very uh, fierce opposition so but i don't think uh, that his definition actually does, C.W. Strand's definition actually requires uh, where you went there, because all it says is an economic system which, transcending the self-regulating market, subordinates a significant part of it to communal control. Outside of the writings of radical libertarians, there has never been a market which has not been subordinated in significant part to communal control, whether you're talking about America, whether you're talking about England, whether you're talking about the Gilded Age, go to any capitalist part you want. The market doesn't even exist without some degree of communal control, a huge degree. For instance, all these contracts are only enforced where? In court. Right. But the point is, which is at the service of which? Is it is the market right, at the service of the common say, good of society? His, or his definition is, doesn't say common good, communal though. control only for the sake of... Yes, but as Joe points out, his definition me mentions nothing about subordinating it to some kind of exalted sort of spiritual or human common good. It just says significant part of it to communal control. And, and if you look at... I mean, obviously, I don't wish to claim that all societies that are socialist have to be communist. But if you look at um, those societies which have been expressly socialist, they have also been entirely geared up to the production of, uh, of material goods and for the sake of economic well-being. It's just that they weren't very good at it. Well, let's take... I mean, let's take the example of Cuba. In Cuba, you have... Um or had at least, I don't know what recent reforms have done with the system. But the idea of the system was this, that uh, basically a kind of um, the principle of uh, uh, no taxation without representation, as it were, but applied to economic life. That is, you can have private property in Cuba as long as... Uh, as long as it's a small amount of property that's not affecting other people. But once you have a, an amount of productive property that gives you power over other people, where it means other people are becoming your servants and it's affecting um, the common life in various ways, then you have to submit that to common control. So, so let's push that point a little bit, because I, th I, think this is, I think this is the socialist argument as I understand it. If you look at modern life, we're not any more, you know, uh, as, as Marx noted, we're not, uh, conditions have changed. The material conditions have changed significantly. And uh, the capitalists now control so much wealth and have so much productive power that they dominate not just the economic life of a country, but the political life of a country. And indeed, international political life is dominated by capitalists and the capitalist class. Therefore, the only way, and since they are, you know, by definition, uh, interested in private goods, the only way to get things back on track is to have the state take over large swaths of the economy, particularly the means of production. And uh, that's what they call socialism. And this is, in fact, required by 
things like Aristotle and Catholic social teaching. Would that be a fair uh, statement of the socialist position, Potter Edmund? Yes. Yeah, mostly. I mean, the, you have it, it's not necessary that the that the state in the sense of the central government of a country um, owns most of the means of production, although that's one of the setups that's possible. But uh, basically, you're right. Yeah. But I, I think let me let me make a, a stab at an alternative definition. Right. I, I yes. think there are three possible understandings of the word socialism. Um, the first one is uh, the idea that the means of production should be owned by the the community as legally expressed in the state. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second one, um, and and that first definition is what I thought socialism was through my childhood and early twenties until I met lots of Americans, and then I started finding <laughs> that lots of Americans <laughs> use the word socialism in a in a very different way, which I first thought was just silly, um, uh, and then slowly over the years, as I became more appreciative of the virtues of of, of the former colonies, I began to realise that it, that in fact it was quite an interesting and sensible definition. Um, so the second definition, which is the one which I found most Americans, at least in the late 90s and early early noughties, um, uh, used to use, uh, is that the idea that the state um, has an antecedent and prevailing right over all property. So it doesn't necessarily have to, as you just said, Potter Edmund, doesn't necessarily have to actually own the means of production and, you know, great big steel foundries and coal mines and all this kind of stuff. It just has to, it just, if it acts in such a way as implies that it is the real owner and individuals and families and uh, private associations are conceded the right to behave like owners as much as the state is willing to concede it and no further, then that is also socialism. On in a certain sense, on a more profound level than the, the the straightforward definition, the first definition which most Europeans take to be the definition of socialism. But I think the third meaning of the term is one which is completely well would be in taken in isolation, completely innocuous, used by all sorts of people. Like uh, the street I grew up on was named after a 19th century liberal cabinet minister called the Marquis of Ripon. And he called, described himself as a Christian socialist. And he was a huge believer in the cooperative movement and in producer cooperatives particularly, but he was also very keen on consumer cooperatives. And he was the head of the Freemasons in, in England, but he owned these... <laughs> He owned these huge estates, and he was sitting in the ruins of Fountains Abbey, a, a stolen oh, no. property of your order, yeah, and indeed, uh, which, yeah. which belonged to his family. <laughs> and uh, and he was he was gloomily looking at these ruins and thinking, how, "What a superior civilization um, had produced this building compared to the one that he lived in now." And he repudiated his masonry and converted to Catholicism. And um, so he was a splendid <laughs> wow, fellow. Excellent. But but he, I'm sure he didn't mean by the word socialism anything which is inimical to Catholic social teaching. Um, but I, but I think the problem. So he just meant that he thought that large scale economic organisation beyond the individual and the family, in order to prevent the endemic systematic exploitation of paid workers, which ought ideally to be encouraged. I'm sure he didn't mean by confiscation, but encouraged by fiscal. Uh, um, incentives and and uh, decentives to be cooperatively owned. That's that's what he meant by the word socialism. And I don't think there's anything in that which is objectionable to Catholic social teaching. But I think that the the Holy See has condemned something called socialism on repeated occasions. And I think that something 
falls into the, the first two categories I described. And I think... And what was the first one again? I, I got well, distracted. I, the first saying. one, I think, more or less, is, is Clause 4, Part 4 of the original constitution of the British Labour Party, which is to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof that may be obtained by the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange, and the best obtainable system of popular administration and control of each industry or service. And uh, so, so long as you understand popular and common in that definition to mean the state... Uh, then that would be socialism in the first definition. Um, and I think both that and the second one are, are condemned by the magisterium. I think the third one isn't, but I think we have to respect the usage of the magisterium because otherwise it causes scandal. And I also think the first two first two definitions are what most people mean by socialism. So it's, it's certainly going to cause scandal if we start going to say, oh, I'm a socialist, by which you actually mean that you'd like to see an economy dominated by producer cooperatives. That's not what people are going it's, to think uh, you mean. Well, let's, let's go to that second definition. Augustine. Yeah. Before Sorry, we go well, there, I just want to say yeah. I'm, I'm always reminded of Augustine. Uh, I think it's in the City of God, but it might be, might be elsewhere. I'm forgetting where he says this, but he has this discussion of fate where uh, certain Christians want to use the word fate. And he says, you really shouldn't, because what everyone knows fate to mean is this idea that the astrologers have that has been roundly condemned. And if you just say, oh, no, by fate, I mean providence, well, then what you mean is fine, but you're going to confuse everyone and everyone's going to be scandalized, blah, 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 blah. So that's my objection to using the third meaning of socialism, which is fine. But if that's what you mean, you know, there's other words you can use that won't uh, uh, go. But let's go to the second one, because I think there's actually a Thomistic argument some people make um, where they claim that... Uh, private property for St. Thomas is merely a matter of positive law. So the by nature, there's the, uh, uh, you know, universal, universal destination of goods, of goods. Yeah. and various positive laws arise. It's a convention that give people private property. But therefore, since it's a matter of private, of positive law, excuse me, uh, the state is the creator of the thing called private property. Who's answering this? Me or Potter Edmund? <laughs> well, Potter Edmund, you go, and then we'll and then we'll have the rebuttal. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, it's uh, the the universal destination of goods is a matter is a primary precept of of natural law, um, whereas private property is a kind of secondary precept or or specification of natural law which side so are you on now <laughs> it does require some uh i mean st thomas talks about how it's it's settled by the customs and laws of various races that is uh the distribution of of property and um the Well, you go, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I'd say, I mean, obviously, thou shalt not steal is not one of the secondary precepts of the law. Um, uh, so um, it's one of the primary precepts of the law. But um, but um, I, I think I, I, I haven't reviewed all the texts in recent past, but um, I think what St. Thomas means is that... Um, is that conventions about the nature of inheritance and, uh, you know, what what can be sold on what days and when and, and all that kind of stuff. Those are all determined by um, uh, um, positive law. 
And I think it's probably right. true that if we had the preternatural gifts, uh, it's not completely clear how much private property would be required. But I mean, just taking human nature without any special assistance, um, I think that uh, that we are we are required by nature to have an institution of private property in the manner that Leo XIII describes in Rerum Novarum. And then the particular way in which that's realised can be determined within certain boundaries by positive law. But I think the most important part of Leo XIII's argument against socialism in Rerum Novarum is, is when he says man precedes the state and possesses prior to the formation of any state the right of providing for the substance of his body. I think that's the most that's the most important thing because I was talking to my father about this who is a is a um well he says it's a simplification to say that he's a marxist but that it's uh, it will do to avoid tedious descriptions <laughs> of his exact position but um uh, but um I was I was I was trying to work out with him um this was a, a, about a year ago ex- exactly what is socialism as distinct from marxism because he agreed that not all forms of socialism are marxism but marxism forms socialism so we're trying to isolate um so that exactly what is socialism could be pinned down and i gave to my father the leo the 13th version of the origin of property that the whole world is given to the entire human race uh, in common in order to provide for their material necessities but the earth does not provide for our material necessities unless we apply our labor to it and uh, so as each one of us applies our labor to it we acquire ownership over that particular portion of the earth and the obligation to provide for ourselves and our dependents um uh, it from that portion of the earth and then insofar as we provide an overabundance we acquire a moral obligation to either give away the overabundance to people who can't provide for themselves or to employ them or let out the property or whatever so that they can provide for themselves right and 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 then the the individuals and families and the organizations they create will in certain respects fail to bring about the necessary provision uh, without the assistance of the temporal power and then the temporal power's right to own supervenes on that and they, the temporal power has the right to take possession of whatever resources, roads, currency, um, railways, um, power generating facilities, whatever might or might armies, uh, police services might be necessary to ensure that, uh, that families and individuals and the organisations they create can make that provision. Right now, my dad's objection to that account is he said that um, so he wasn't trying to invoke any Marxist metaphysics, as it were. He was just trying to object on the basis of just what anyone would agree. His objection to that account was that the community is intrinsically involved from the beginning, more than just the family, in my capacity to extract the goods of the earth from the earth. And therefore, the community is also has an original title uh, to that to that property and to the fruits uh, in the same way that the individual and the family do, right? Now I think that's a very good right. argument and hard to deal with. And I, and and my 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 answer, I think that line from Leo the Thirteenth is essentially Leo the Thirteenth's answer to that. He thinks that the state, sorry, the individual and the family are antecedent to the state, and they, as it were, well, generate. Isn't the, isn't the objection there? Can't you can't you sharpen it slightly and say, you know, let's go. Uh, look at what the anthropologists have told us about various tribes and see if this just so story about the origin of money and the origin of property is true. And what we find is that tribes 
so primitive societies that haven't developed into cities with writing and all this stuff, but that are still sort of, they're not quite simply a family, but they're the one step out from, from family, uh, often do not have private property the way we have. So you think of the American Indians, where the elders of the tribes, of certain tribes at least, would dictate who got what and would say who used what. Um, and you think of other tribes where there were, you know, the, uh, at least so the anthropologists tell us there were uh, gift exchanges, but not bartering. Bartering didn't exist. You'd give gifts. Uh, and there was maybe some expectation that the other person would also give gifts, but there wasn't a quid pro quo. Um, so there we can see that private property, so the story goes, is in fact an invention of civilization, and it's to deal with issues of having strangers that you have to have exchange with, but it's not natural and it doesn't precede the state. In fact, it is an effect of the state. Once you get these more complex forms, that's when you need private property. Private property isn't natural itself. Right, it's, but I mean, it's, my, uh, artificial. My my answer to that would be that that I don't think we should. I think that for man to be in the polis is natural to man. The fact that in a more primitive condition he's not yet arrived in the polis um, is not uh, does not mean that the polis is artificial in that sense. And I think that Aristotle says in the Politics the reason why uh, most societies in their early stages are hereditary monarchies uh, is because. Uh, the tribe, as it were, evolves out of the family, and then the tribes federate right. into a city, and so it's natural for the monarchical, patriarchal form to be carried on into the city, um, and then you know the dynasty ends up being rubbish, and they turn into a republic, <laughs> um, but the um, uh, or not, as the case may be. That brings us to the end of part one. Part two is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs>